0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with the late Kevin McElvoy, who died on September 30th. This interview was recorded in 2019, and we talked about his novel, At the Gate of All Wonder.
1: I don't think I've ever written anything that isn't about listening.
0: We'll be back with Kevin McElvoy's 2019 interview after these words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest, there is so much free content out there and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free, but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show. I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. Before I introduce Kevin McEvoy, I want to say I had the privilege of working with him for a semester in graduate school and kept in contact with him over the years. He was one of the best teachers I've ever had. And he wasn't just an instructor for writing. He was really an instructor for life and how to be human. He was generous, he had an infectious sense of peace, was immeasurably thoughtful, and he championed other people's writing with a kind fierceness that made you feel like this artistic life, with all its doubts and anxieties, was the right life to be living, no matter the outcome with the work. He had a gentle soul, unique voice, deep intelligence, and warm presence, He taught from a place of positivity, focusing on your assets and not on your weaknesses. I used to pester him to tell me what I was doing wrong in my writing, and he would say, let's talk about all the things you do right and work on your strengths. I've adopted that mentality in many things in my life beyond the page, and I hope you will too. There are three different interviews with Kevin McEvoy in the archives of First Draft, so I invite you to take them all in. The episode you're about to listen to is the fourth most downloaded episode of the more than 400 I've recorded over nine years. There is just something special about Mac, as we called him. This episode is all about listening and paying attention to the world, to yourself, to others, which I believe he would want us to continue to do with all our hearts and to see the world through eyes of love. I'm grateful to have known Kevin McElvoy. He was the author of the novels One Kind Favor, At the Gate of All Wonder, Hisop, Little Peg, A Waltz, and The Fifth Station. He also was the author of the story collections 57 Octaves Below Middle Sea and The Complete History of New Mexico. His work appeared in Tri-Quarterly, Harper's Magazine, The Southern Review, and Plowshares, among others. He taught in the Department of English at New Mexico University and the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. We talked about his novel, At the Gate of All Wonder, which tells the story of Samantha Peabody, a seasoned bioacoustician, and eccentric who takes young girls on listening tours of the Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina. The novel is told as Samantha is reaching her 80th year and she is reflecting back on a time when 13 years earlier, she spent a year guiding two young girls, Betty and Janet, whom she calls the one and the other, on listening tours. Samantha is reckoning with the events of that time and her own ability to open her heart to others, despite her resistance to letting the girls occupy an emotional space in her life. We began the discussion with Kevin McElvoy, articulating his inspiration for writing the novel at the gate of all wonder.
1: I think for me, always, a new book grows out of everything else that I've written and out of everything else that I have pushed at myself to learn as a writer. So, for instance, this book, to some degree, could be described really simply as a book about listening. What she is teaching these children is how to listen in a way that the world might not teach them, if not for her, Uh, that um, she will give them a way of hearing the world around them, that if it takes hold, will transform their lives. I don't think I've ever written anything that isn't about listening. Uh, This is uh, my seventh published book. I've written uh, 13 books. I've had the luck of publishing seven. Um, And because from the first short stories I wrote, the first novels that I wrote, to the present moment, everything depends on um, the sound of the work itself. Uh, Either the narrative voice and the sound of that voice, its modulations, its tonal shifts, um, or the world that it introduces you to. So from uh, really early on, and I'm talking about 18 or 19 years old since I committed my life to writing, I've committed myself to constantly trying to listen better. And um, and I have done very deliberate things in my life to train my ear and to uh, retrain and retrain myself about how I listen to the world. I hope that when I've written the last thing I've ever written, I can look back on everything I've written and say, um, you went deeper. You went more and more deeply into how the world sounds, and the wonder of that, the marvel. Of that. So I'm always uh, keeping notes in my journal. Those notes always have to do with um, what I am hearing in the world around me. Uh, and that means I'm always uh, also reading books that help me learn to hear. So I was, uh, I think, at the time reading Richard Hedstrom's book, Nature in Miniature, in which he talks about the smallest creatures on our planet that um, we can actually still see with the naked eye. And um, he writes uh, throughout this book also about the sounds those creatures make, that if we would simply stop ourselves, we could actually hear, though they are the smallest creatures on this planet. Uh, And um, I think I was probably also reading uh, Murray Schaefer's book, The Soundscape. Murray Schaefer has spent his entire life studying how um, the world, particularly the natural world, but also um, the urban world sounds and why that matters.
0: What have you learned about listening? And what do you think your interpretation is of the general populace and their ability to listen?
1: Well, maybe it might be true that we live in a moment uh, a certain kind of historical moment in which our capacity to actually hear each other is so diminished that um, uh, by everything from uh, politics to our addiction to our devices to um, the um, next and next and next manifestations of um, the uh, machine age uh, that we have... Um, Uh, kind of lost the capacity, not just in the United States, but perhaps in the world, to actually hear what we're hearing, to actually stop and listen to what we're hearing instead of what we wish to be hearing um, or what we speculate that we're hearing. And um, so I do believe that one of the things that art does is say – here is how the world might be, and, um, and especially the novelist has the opportunity because of the scale of the work to examine the smallest aspects of that and the largest aspects of that, the gray areas of that, and not just the black and white areas of it, and in particular the paradoxes of it. If we listen to each other, what happens? To us, um, how do we reform certain relationships? If we listen to each other, how do we cope with the truth that we're actually hearing instead of what we want to hear? Uh, and um, and I think sometimes a uh, a novel, a story, can place us inside the condition of uh, a. Um, of a world in which people are listening to each other can present some of the outcomes of that and can characterize some of the motives for doing that. Uh, And I guess I kind of hope that this novel, which is both a novel of character, I hope it involves the reader with the characters, Samantha, Janet, Betty, Elaine, Elaine, drummer, this whole set of characters, also engages readers in ideas. I do think of it as both a novel of character and a novel of ideas.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Samantha Peabody. She takes these sonic adventures in the woods with little girls and gets them to listen, and she's writing in a retrospective narrator. So she's about to turn 80, I believe, Right. And she's looking right. looking back at some incidences that took place about fifteen years earlier, approximately. So, can you talk a little bit more specifically about her personality and and why you wanted it to be her as an older woman looking back?
1: She is a person who uh, has has a long life as a scientist, um, has had a lot of opportunity to um, join her scientist brain um, to her sensitive body as a listener to the world and as a person who experiences the world closely. And she believes that what she wants in the next moment in her life, um, is to completely isolate herself from humankind. She wants the company of nature and she wants it exclusively. She is tired of humankind and she's tired of humankind's, uh, insensitivity and, um, and wants to leave it, really leave it. She has made that decision in her mind. Um, and, um, She wants to, for instance, think about the people that she takes on these sonic adventures. They're all children. She wants to think about them as specimens, to think about them as curious things that she will um, introduce to uh, these concepts and to these ways of listening. Um, She believes that what she's offering is life-transforming. She does not believe at that moment that they have something to offer her. And she does not believe that she could possibly ever feel something more towards them than that they are, these curious specimens. And I hope that what comes through in the story is that she is recollecting. Um, While she is now in isolation and has been in complete isolation from uh, human contact um, for almost 12 years, that um, she's recollecting that despite herself, she fell deeply in love with these children. And that is something that is a powerful reminder to her that actually she loves humankind, uh, and she, uh, however, she had formed a notion that she did not. She does, in fact, and those children embody humankind and uh, um, the wonder and awe that we can find in each other, more or less despite ourselves.
0: So Samantha went out and had this kind of ad for Sonic Adventures and she she was very tough and unyielding in, she was not coddling, not to the parents. They had to sort of pay everything up front. She had to pre-interview them. And basically, once the kids were in her care, she was kind of strict. Maybe she made them put their heads under the water when it was cold or they camped um, when it was cold yeah. and rainy. And she she was, you could say in some ways, she was merciless for her cause, for them hearing one of the things that was really important to her was this idea of being lost.
1: She says that she considers her main job uh, to take children into the wilderness and lose them. (laughs) Um, And um, that is uh, its own uh, resonating reference to uh, the Hansel and Gretel story. Um, But it is also, to some degree, uh, a... um, a manifestation of an archetypal story of how whenever we enter nature, truly enter it, one of the first profound experiences that happens to us is we feel lost. We feel dislocated. Uh, and um, that that lostness is an invitation to... Um, to accept things that are paradoxical in our lives, uh, the, um, we, we always are facing a choice of saying, uh, but if I do this, then I lose this. If I move here, then I lose this. If I, um, uh, if I decide to be this way, what will I have lost? And nature immediately even when you are on a clearly marked trail, um, the minute you actually give yourself over to it, you are profoundly lost in a way that can make you vulnerable enough to completely re-experience the awe of um, life, of drawing breath. And, uh, um, and it's also what many of us believe art does. That um, you encounter beauty, dark and luminous beauty, and um, you feel that you are, as uh, the philosopher Elaine Scarry uh, says, radically decentered. You cannot any longer believe that everything revolves around you. Um, you are thrown off of that condition uh, of being encapsulated, and uh, and now you understand how dangerous it feels to be exposed to everything around you and how paradoxically at the same moment, wonderful that is to be that vulnerable. And, um, and so this is, this is her kind of what you would call her teaching pedagogy. <laughs> um, take people into wonder where they will experience true vulnerability and and a deeper sense of the marvelous.
0: Can we talk a little bit about her sonic adventures, just a little bit about what she does in the woods? She takes these two little girls that she generally terms one and the other. They do have names, Betty and and Janet, Mm -hmm. that that we know they have, that Uh she only calls them later. And she takes them out in the woods. So can you talk a little bit about what they do and, and writing about that?
1: Uh, she will take them, for instance, to a beaver pond uh, at an odd hour, um, at what storytellers would call the magic hour, when um, something really interesting is happening there that might not be happening at another hour in that beaver pond, and um, and she uh, asks them to listen very carefully to what is happening in that beaver pond and in the meantime is introducing them to a whole set of concepts about nature and the natural world and for instance, um, the natural behavior of water um, in a contained space and of the creatures like beavers who decimate a given uh, ecological system uh, by exhausting it. Uh, and um And she is giving them often concepts that are entirely over their heads uh and um and is nevertheless feeling that um what she is offering is something that is going in and it is going in because she has been teaching them how to actually hear and um often what we hear. Uh, that we take in the deepest is what we cannot quite decipher, what is riddling to us um, that takes hold in us because it is a riddle. Um, She'll do things like ask them to spend the day um, moving over a little uh, area of forest on all fours. And she'll um, uh, walk that area on all fours with them so that they can feel what the soundscape feels like when your your body is that much closer to uh, the earth, to uh, the land, uh, to the soundscape of a forest. Um, she will, um, if they encounter something like a porcupine, uh, she will uh, ask them to listen and to interact with that creature in a way that um, is a reminder that um a creature like that may in fact appear to be in relationship with you, but is utterly indifferent to you uh, and um, uh, and such creatures will even acquire a name uh, often um, related to the sound that they make in nature. So the porcupine, the teenage porcupine they need is named Queteket cuquoti. Uh, and, um, so what she is trying to do is, um, each of these times that the children come to the woods to, uh, have their, uh, session with her to introduce them to some other new aspect of the natural world.
0: As you said earlier, you've been working on your own listening your whole life, but did you do specific time in the forest near your home to listen?
1: I've always done a lot of homework for my work. Um, uh, A lot of research uh, in advance, a lot of research at a critical point in the drafting of the book and a lot of research after that is conscience checking research. And this is the most fun I have ever had researching a book because what I did um, from uh, uh, loosely, Uh, from uh, the beginning of writing this book, 2012 to 2015, was um, in the first week of every month, I went to the Pisgah Wilderness, and um, I walked the same two-and-a-half-mile trail to the same primitive camp there um, so that I would have a sense... Um, of what this place was like in all seasons and specifically what the soundscape was like. So I went there with my notebook. I uh, planned whenever I took this hike for it to be essentially a four to five hour uh, experience in which I would constantly stop and take notes. I would hear a bird and I would think to myself, is that a red oriole?" I would um, hear something moving in the woods and I would wonder if that was a bear Uh, curious and following me, um, whether it was a raccoon. um, I would uh, try to do things like reenact what I uh, was writing. So I would get down on all fours. I would uh, walk through uh, parts of uh, that area on all fours. uh, And then at the end of every one of these uh, sessions, I would come down off the trail uh, and I would uh, go into the visitor center there and um, would ask the rangers a whole set of questions. I would say, no, I think I heard. And they would say, um, well, actually, uh, that's not what you heard. Uh, this is probably what you heard. In some cases, I would say, could could you come to this little neck of, um, of that trail for me and tell me if I'm just imagining this? And believe it or not, they would come there with me. And uh, one of them would say, um, no, here, look, look again at this. And I would say, well, it's not, I'm not looking. I'm trying to listen harder. And they would listen with me and um, gosh, they were so kind to me. They were so wonderful to me. And, um, and they, of course, got used to me being there and they would say, Oh, it's Mac. And um, I would say, yeah. And I got my whole set of questions. And actually they were, Quite excited about my whole set of questions and uh, I uh, am greatly in their debt um, and I did this constantly I, I uh, because the way the chapters work is that it's the first uh, uh, um, it's the first weeks in it every month um, I went there in the first weeks of every month continuously uh, and um, I didn't stay there for a whole uh, week. I stayed there for a whole day and um, filled four notebooks with my notes uh, about um, these things that I was hearing in this specific part of the Pisca.
0: Did you run into anyone while you were crawling around on all fours?
1: <laughs> I had more than one embarrassing circumstance. <laughs> I had a circumstance once in which uh, I had my face pressed very close into the bark of a tree. Um, I was trying to uh, hear into a bolus in the tree. Um, Most boluses in trees have um, uh, insects swarming in them, Uh, and um, I had my face pressed absolutely close to this tree, (laughs) and I guess I wasn't hearing anything but what was going on inside the tree, and someone came up on me and said, are you okay, mister? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I had some instances like that. Uh, I had other instances in which the Rangers themselves were curious about what I was doing, and um, I knew that I did not wish to tell them until I had the book uh, really done that what I was doing was uh, not a research for a novel. I I said, I'm doing research uh, in order to retrain my ear. Uh, And they were uh, understanding of that. I, I think as true naturalists, they, of course, were miles ahead of me in the ways in which they had already done that.
0: The title, At the Gate of All Wonder, I think is a Tao saying?
1: It uh, comes from uh, a passage in the Tao that says, um, to darken the darkness, this is the gate of all wonder. Which is a tr- truly mysterious thing to say. How do you darken the darkness? <laughs> How do you do that? Um, well, um, if you are listening blind to what you are listening to, uh, you are at the gate of all wonder. Um, You are essentially in the darkness because you don't know what you're listening to or what you wish to be listening to. Um, It finds you. Uh, It darkens that darkness. It deepens it. Uh, It enriches it. Uh, And uh, and. There is there is a, a way in which when we enter nature we are entering the darkness because um, as modern human beings um, that is no longer the familiar to us it is the place where uh, we will be lost uh, but uh, this is also something that I uh, I think of a great deal in terms of uh, how I try to stay alert to the world. Uh, When I'm listening to things tonally, I'm often saying, what darkens that darkness? Uh, I was uh, talking with somebody about this recently, and uh, uh, they said, can you give an example? And I said, well, have uh, you ever listened to Aretha Franklin's Ain't No Way? Uh, It's uh, one of the amazing songs that she recorded early in her career and um it is just tremendously heartbreaking song from the beginning i mean it's all about someone saying ain't no way you could ever love me i know that why do i keep wishing you could love me uh and about um 50 seconds into the song um The background singer, who happened to be Aretha Franklin's sister, um, hits a high note that she sustains and sustains and sustains and sustains. Uh, It just goes on and on, that high note. And um, each time you listen to that song, you think to yourself, wow, that is so amazing that that comes in there um, basically a third of the way into the song. What is that? doing there um well it seems effectively, you feel like what it's doing is saying here's the darkest song you've ever listened to here's a single sustained note that darkens the darkness of that song that deepens your sadness right uh and um and that is that's that's a way of listening to the world um is um If the world is offering a rich darkness, the darkness of uh, uh, loam, what else is present in it that is a marvelous darkness? One could say this, by the way, about light. Um, If if what you're holding feels like it is uh, light, uh, full of light, it is uh, luminous, um, what uh, makes it more luminous that exists inside of it? But for somebody like me who loves the blues uh, and um, who uh, plays the blues on his harmonica badly but plays them every day uh, and um, listens to the blues uh, every day that he ever lives, um, you're kind of alert to the darknesses that darken the darkness.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influenced you? As a writer.
1: Yes, and I mentioned Tony Hoagland. And Tony um, was a friend of mine for um, over 20 years. Tony, who just died this past year, uh, was a tremendous influence on me as a human being and as a writer. He was a remarkable person. Uh, As a writer, categorically different than me, and part of why the conversation between us was so valuable. Um, uh, we constantly sent each other our pages, was that we were so different in, um, in the world and uh, in our work uh, and could be in a unique position of learning from each other because we were not always exactly aligned, though we had the same kind of fundamental values. So this is a poem of his called The Color of the Sky. Windy today, and I feel less than brilliant driving over the hills from work. There are the dark parts on the road when you pass through clumps of wood and the bright spots where you have a view of the ocean, but that doesn't make the road an allegory. I should call Marie and apologize for being so boring at dinner last night, but can I really promise not to be that way again? And anyway, I'd rather watch the trees tossing in what certainly looks like sexual arousal. Otherwise, it's spring and everything looks frail. The sky is baby blue and the just unfurling leaves are full of infant chlorophyll, the very tint of inexperience. Last summer's song is making a comeback on the radio and on the highway overpass, the only metaphysical vandal in America has written memory loves time in big black spray paint letters, which makes us wonder if time loves memory back. Last night, I dreamed of X again. She's like a stain on my subconscious sheets. Years ago, she penetrated me, but though I scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed, I never got her out, and now I'm glad. What I thought was an end turned out to be a middle. What I thought was a brick wall turned out to be a tunnel. What I thought was an injustice turned out to be a color of the sky. Outside the youth center between the liquor store and the police station, a little dog tree, dogwood tree, is losing its mind, overflowing with blossom foam like a sudsy mug of beer, like a bride ripping off her clothes, dropping snow-white petals to the ground in clouds. So nature's wastefulness seems quietly obscene it's been doing that all week making beauty and throwing it away and making more
0: can you read a passage that you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft
1: these are two pages i i uh that come to mind because um these were originally this was originally these two pages were originally over 20 pages uh, and um i kept uh, taking in and then removing passages of sam imparting information instead of um settling at last into um the embodying sensations that um i know in my heart she would uh be most loyal to um and um and so any time i ever look at this uh, book of course since i'm trying so hard to grow as a writer, um, I am always looking at passages that I struggled with Um, as I'm making the next work. I'm always saying to myself, geez, I seem to be struggling with this again, um, that I've been struggling with in everything I've written since I was 17. Uh, And um, what are my new ways of coping with that um, and um, so these pages kind of make me confront my own um, inclination, especially ending things and especially beginning things um, to load them when um, uh, in such a way as to uh, arrive at some form of completeness the lesson re- eternally for me is not to reach for, completeness in anything I write to reach for fullness uh, um, no matter what perspective I'm writing in, no matter what um, the story is. So this is the, these are the final pages. And again, you have to picture that what I'm going to read are um, six paragraphs. And this was originally 20 pages. October 17th, 2016. I hear white-throated sparrows, transients. Moving on. Janet turns 19 today. I turn 80. I hear from far above the sound of a hawk at great height and straining to go higher. I hear from a small apple orchard along a stream bed that could be nearly 10 miles away, a flock of grackles at maximum shrieking obnoxiousness and the blistering reactions of the blue jays near them, And the responses of the four legged creatures intimidated by the blue jays. I hear gnats slurring in vortical swarms with a rising inflected note and a note soft falling. The catbirds. I hear them. If I will hear only them and will not allow myself to remember hearing them at other times and will not look at them, I will hear them if I will not ruin the transmission by welcoming in my other senses. The sounds coming to visit me would be lost in the moment I opened my eyes and my arms and smelled and tasted and touched, deducing fragrance and sweetness and chill. And if I will not imagine what I hear, but will actually hear Then what comes to me are broom sweep sounds, the wings of the nuthatches, the thrushes, bluebirds, purple finches, sparrows flying through, and impossibly, impossibly, audibly plucking but not breaking the acrobat threads of balloon spiders riding the wind, letting the threads go, extending their legs before parachuting on the air currents and relaunching. Distant. Faint thunder is inside the sunlight today. Sweet striking a pond at a higher elevation vibrates inside the sunlight today. And the vocalizations of creatures at the entrance to their burrows. One might believe that today the sun has touched the faces of them, has brushed the charged roots and branches and treetops and the glistening webs and feathers and fur in order to sing, and to be heard. So that's the last two pages of the book, and I think um, it's probably true that those that part of the book gave me a greater challenge than almost any other part of the book.
0: Where do you write?
1: Ah, I'm very fortunate in that uh, I have my own studio. We live um, in the woods, um, and I have a uh, separate little shack uh, that um, is in the woods behind our home and um, it is a uh, it was the previous owner's man cave uh, he had in it um, hanging from the rafters different uh, motorcycle skeletons motorcycles in uh, different uh, states of development uh, and the whole place was full of his tools etc um And um, it was very uh, 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 poorly insulated. It uh, had no windows. It um, was uh, heated by a wood-burning stove that was incredibly inefficient. Uh, And um, so uh, we remade it for me. Uh, And it is the studio where I work now. And I'm able to spend long hours out there immersed in uh, my own mess because I <laughs> am very messy uh, and have spread around me everything from my harmonicas to um, the newest books I've pulled off the shelf in order to reread or to look at again. um, uh, my, um, uh, my art materials for the scratch art that I do. Uh, it's usually quite a mess. There's a couple of times a year when I clean it up and, um, am briefly quite proud of how, uh, uh, clean it is and how, uh, well-organized. Uh, but that's about it. It's, uh, it's a great place for me to work and I'm very lucky to have it.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: You know, um, I'm kind of a boring fellow in that um, I don't uh, very often uh, feel uh, the inclination to to, uh, get away from that environment, that studio. Now, uh, I love to be in my garden. I like those hours of the day uh, during the times of year when I can garden. My wife and I love to hike, and we um, frequently hike in the Blue Ridge. Um, We also... Um, take ballroom dancing lessons uh, and um, that is an important part of my life. We've done it now for over five years and um, so that also feels like its own adventure. Every lesson, every dance lesson is its own uh, remarkable adventure. It has been also really good for me. I I knew it would be um, at cheering with my body, because uh, one of the great things about dance is that uh, you, uh, however good you may think you are at um, joining the tempo of the music to the tempo of uh, your movement to it, you um, are usually not uh, that good, and uh, and so... That is, that's a departure for me that also feels like an extension of of my life as an artist.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Always. uh, The writer I live with, Christine Hale, um, uh, who is a published writer herself, uh, um, of both fiction and nonfiction. Um, I've always had the luck of sharing my work with poets like Tony Hoagland um, here in town. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful reader uh, who is an amazing poet. Sebastian Matthews uh, always uh, lets me trade pages with him. uh, And um, I always, in stages, carry my work to friends who are specifically not writers but are voracious readers, um, specifically voracious readers of very, very different kinds of literature um, and uh, and often of very different kinds of literature than the kind I write. Uh, and I'm, I've been very lucky all my life in being able to turn to friends, uh, new friends and old friends who are not writers and say, would you read this draft? Uh, and would you talk with me about your impressions? Uh, and um, that is enormously helpful.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I'm typical in that most of my work has had a great struggle to achieve publication, Uh, not just individual stories, but novels. Uh, I have never, not once ever had the luck of writing a book that um, a publisher was already waiting for and anxious to publish. I've never, not once had the experience of having a book go to my agent and my agent instantly placing it. I've never not once had a work um, simply accepted by an editor um, without there being um, uh, the kinds of negotiations in which the editor uh, says, well, I think, I want to commit, uh, but then takes a long time deciding before saying no to. um, I'm very lucky that I've published the work that I have, and I'm very aware of how subjective the process is. One of the reasons I think I'm so aware of it is that I was an editor for 28 years of uh, a national literary magazine, Puerto del Sol. Um, I've been... An outside reader for half a dozen major university presses uh, and um, am now an, uh, a fiction editor for uh, Orson books, which means that I read um, well over 150 uh, book manuscripts for them a year. Um, and I know how subjective the decision-making is. Um, So when I get rejected, I'm able to say to myself, um, okay, I forgive you, editor, for not being able to meet my work on its own terms at this moment in your life. I, I can do that because I was that editor who was doing his best, his level best to meet the work on its own terms, but was always still learning. How to meet very different kinds of work on their own terms, uh, and who was failing as often as succeeding. Um, this also means that when I have work accepted, uh, I am able to, humbly uh, to say to myself, oh, uh, That probably was a very subjective decision made by an editor um, at a certain moment um, in which uh, they failed to meet the work on its own terms uh, and accepted it. (laughs) So I I am lucky to publish. I'm typical in that um, uh, uh, my life as a writer is uh, checkered with difficult experiences of uh, breaking into publication. Um, and, um, I hope that means that I'm able to talk to writers, uh, uh, um, who think that, uh, everything does happen in a great big giant and exciting way, uh, instantly because they've, um, seen that somewhere. Um, and who are just not quite aware that that is, Rare indeed that most of us writing books of poetry, writing novels, writing books of short story uh, are struggling into publication from one book to the next.
0: And what is your favorite word? (laughs)
1: Um, You know, uh, you will find certain words, of course, as a teacher that um, each time you say them, you uh, have to think to yourself, I'll bet I have said this a thousand times in the last year, and I'll bet I have been using this word um, repeatedly for as long as I have ever presumed to be a teacher. Uh, and um, and it means that the word is almost like a part of me, and that's the simple word flux, um, which is only um, a word conveying the marvel of how inflowing and outflowing. A moment is, a breath is, a phrase of music or language, an interaction, a memory. Um, uh, I guess it's been a kind of a tuning fork word for me where uh, if I'm trying to listen well, um, I'm trying to have a way to remind myself, what does that mean? Well, listen to things in flux. Things as they change um, uh, in a microsecond, um, as they um, alter uh, from one moment to the next. So if I'm writing a sentence about someone remembering, um, and the sentence doesn't carry in it um, all of the um, sense of how shifting and how rapidly shifting memory is... um, then I have a word to remind myself. Uh, Revise that sentence so that it is uh, true to flux.
0: Thank you so much for sharing and for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: I've really enjoyed this. I've really appreciated so much this opportunity to talk about my book. I'm proud of my simple little book, and I'm, I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to talk with you about it.
0: If you liked today's show with the late Kevin McElvoy, author of the novel At the Gate of All Wonder, please listen to our other interviews. One was on his story collection, 57 Octaves Below Middle C*, and the other on his novel One Kind Favor. You can find those interviews and the entire First Draft archive of more than 380 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Stacey Durasmo, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.